0: so go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. We issued you a few weeks ago during our Table Manners series, the Table Manners Challenge, to eat with people you don't normally are with when you, when you eat, to share a table with those who are not normally at your table. And I just love the pictures coming in. So well done and don't stop now. Keep it up. Keep it up. But today I gotta tell you about another table, can I? A table in 1978. 1978, Thanksgiving was in our house, which was great fun, everybody came over. We loved it, we had cousins and uncles and and aunts and in-laws and outlaws and everything in between. And they brought the food too. It was Thanksgiving and they brought all the food and the trimmings, we had turkey of course and dressing. Somebody in our family worked for a spiral baked ham company, so we had a spiral ham that year as well. We had all the sides that you might imagine. We had mashed potatoes and green beans and every kind of casserole that you can think of. We had what we called yams. I know it's called sweet potato casserole, but we called it yams. And we had cranberry sauce. But the beautiful thing about our cranberry sauce, it was beautiful. It had like the same shape you know, on the outside, as the can, it came in. You don't know what I'm talking about, do you? Come on, come on. We had canberry sauce, is what we had. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was great. And my, my grum- grandmother was, was English, and, and so she, she, she brought what we called mushy peas. It's a traditional English. You ever had mushy peas? Listen, it's not only good to taste, but you can also use it to spackle things, you can re-grout your tile with mushy peas. I'm not kidding you. But we had a great time. We gathered together. But at our table, we, we only had a small table. And so we had to extend it a little bit. One of our family members brought a card table and it put it at the end. And we propped it up a little bit so the height was the same. My dad, on the other end, uh, had these two homemade saw horses with a piece. Some, some of y'all are nodding like you've been to my house. Like you've been there, and, and a piece of plywood across the top of the and then a couple of bed sheets later, and you've got a spread for a king. We enjoyed that. It was so much fun. And we talked and laughed and sang and played together. But while we're eating in the middle of this meal, this glorious Thanksgiving of nineteen seventy-eight, I noticed some tension. I'm only, you know, but I pick up on these things early. I noticed some tension at the end of the table and I don't know what it is but you know how Thanksgiving is somebody says something usually passive aggressive about the food you brought or something a snide remark and the next thing I knew people I looked and I saw my mother had made this pie called millionaire pie with fruit and whipped cream and she crammed it in the face of her sister And her sister, shocked, as we all were shocked, gets this pie off her face and throws it back at my mother. And some of it hit her, but some of it flew by and hit her own son. Now we had friendly fire. (laughs) Now he picks up some potatoes. My brother has two fistfuls of yam. And we had the food fight of the century. Food was flying everywhere around my house. And when I replay, I'm talking like peas. Dishes of peas cascaded like a work of art. And when I replay it in my mind, it's happening in slow motion, you know? And I'm hearing like the song that Loudermilk played earlier. I mean, give thanks with a grateful heart. And there's potatoes. Give thanks to the Holy One. Give thanks. I mean, it's slow motion, but it's replaying like reality in my mind. And at the end, we laughed until we cried. It was awesome. I think there may still be mushy peas on the ceiling of that house. And I say that to you today because it is something of a parable for some of us here. <laughs> because some of y'all getting together on Thursday. And you may not pick up the potatoes and throw them at each other, but you may want to. And I thought I might talk about that a little bit this morning. Because you know that somebody that's in your life. And they usually sit at your table and god always puts somebody at your table you wish were somehow in the other room and everything that they say triggers you and not just what they say but how they say it and what they do and what they believe and you you can't for the life of you understand why someone would orient their life the way they have oriented this, this life and it may be something as silly as as college football Yeah, it'll be pretty emotional at our, yeah, pretty emotional at at our our table this Thanksgiving. Uh, It may be college football, but it may be worse than that. It may be more important than that. It may be they set you off because of politics or theology, or it may be because of the way you raise your kids or the way they raise theirs or the way they can't keep their mouth shut about the way you raise yours right? Am I talking to anybody yet? And it may not be that you pick up the cranberry sauce and chuck it across the room, but already in your mind, in your mind, in your heart, you have taken the wishbone from the turkey and you have impaled them across the table. And I'm here to say, that's why this message may be important today. And I want to read for this final sermon in the series of Table Manners, one verse and one verse only. I want us to dig into this one verse until we get to the marrow of the bone. You find this verse in the heart of the 23rd Psalm, round about verse 5, thou preparest a table before me in the presence of. Of my enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Beloved, I know why God would set a table before me. Thou preparest a table before me. God is always preparing a table before us. That's what this whole series has been about. We've recognized all of these fascinating moments in the gospel where Jesus finds himself around a table, around a meal, around a feast of some sort, and it happens with peculiar frequency in which he teaches, he lifts up, he heals, he reproves, he corrects, he inspires, he transforms people around these tables. And we've said all along why that is, because the New Testament writers understood that the table symbolized everything. The table symbolized where everything was going because at the end of the age there will be this great messianic table that God will spread and all of the broken and the scattered of this world will be brought around that table to be mended, reconciled, redeemed with a healing love forever and ever and ever. And I've been trying to say to you for seven weeks, that the degree to which we make space at the table of our hearts for one another is the degree to which the kingdom of that that we're talking about would break into your life now. The degree to which you make space for others at the table of your heart is the degree to which that kingdom breaks forth, not later, but in real ways now. And what we've been saying along the way is that the table is always set before us to see what we might do with it. So I get it. So I get why God would use a table as a dominant image all throughout the teachings of Jesus to get us prepared for what is to come. Because some amazing things can happen around a table. Some of life's most beautiful moments, filled with giddiness and laughter, but also moments of abject sorrow and heartache. You know, when we go out with friends, sometimes we experience both. Every time that we go out to dinner with Heather and Tommy Heaton, for example. Tommy's not here today, so I'm going to talk about him a little bit. Inevitably, no matter where we go, sometime in that time together, we break loose into song. We just, we sing. And about a year ago, we're right at this Mexican restaurant, uh, And and we're just talking about things. Eventually, the conversation gets around to talking about Jesus. Getting close to his birthday. We talk about Jesus. And Tommy breaks into Jesus, Jesus. Oh, what a wonderful child. So then, of course, I bring in the the, the harmony. Jesus, mm, Jesus, mm, so lonely, meek and mild. But that time, we have our wives who kick in. So now there are four of us singing five-part harmony. But we're clapping, we're singing, but there's a beautiful moment, we're singing all about Jesus, we're having this, and about two tables over, this African-American family is there, and now they're in on it. And we're having church at this Mexican restaurant, singing about Jesus, and it's fantastic, around the table, there are moments like that, and you just want to laugh, and sing, and play, and love, and at the same time, there are other moments, like when I was at lunch at Curly on, just here in Johns Creek with Bill Self. He and I would go out to lunch with one another. And during that lunch, he was waiting to hear the news of his diagnosis. And while we were eating, his phone rang. And it was his doctor who told him that it was ALS. And neither one of us had much of an appetite anymore. There's sometimes when all you can do at a table with someone you love is put the food aside and be present in painful silence, in powerful support. We talked and we prayed, we paid our bill, or I paid it, (laughs) and and we left. The table is an amazing thing. I get it. I get why God would set a table before me in the presence of my friends. I get why God would set a table before me in the presence of those who understand me, who get me, who support me, who have my back when the arrows are flying. I get that. I get, thou preparest a table before me in the presence of all those who agree with me and basically affirm my outlook on all things. What I don't get is, thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. That's hard work. And it's hard work even interpreting what the text means at that point, because some have said, some have interpreted this verse to mean, yes, God is so on your side that God will set a table before you and make your enemies watch as a way to somehow taunt your enemies in their defeat as they see you feast in your victory. I've heard that before. And maybe, okay, possibly, That's what that means. But the problem with that kind of thinking is that he sets a table before my enemies too in the presence of me. Hmm. See, the problem is Jesus is the interpretive lens through which I read all of the Bible, including this verse. And Jesus is the one who set a table before Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. Matthew, who was on the payroll of the empire, and Simon, who wanted to overthrow the empire. Now they are passing biscuits to each other. See, Jesus is the one who reaches forward and dips his bread in the same bowl as his betrayer on purpose. So when I hear, Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of mine enemies, I don't think it's to taunt the enemies. Because frankly, Jesus never said, thou shalt not have any enemies. What he said is, thou ought to learn something about how to love them. So why would God set a table before me in the presence of my enemies? Of all the 100 reasons that could be possible as to why God would behave that way, I want to suggest one, just one reason why God has set a table before you in the presence of that one that you know about, you know? Because of this. Enemies are mirrors to the soul. Enemies are mirrors to the soul because typically we think that the enemy is that person right there. And sometimes it is. Sometimes that person could have done egregious things to you or said egregious things about you. Yes, sometimes it is really, really all about them. But most of the time, we think that our enemy is that person right there. But truly the enemy is what that person symbolizes for you. Because there's usually something in the behavior, the choices, the presence of that enemy that provokes an awareness of something in you that may need some work. Can I get you to think for just a moment about the person that I'm talking about in your life? You're like, well, I have no enemies. You're okay. Uh, okay. So you're like the woman at the small country church where the pastor said, we're gonna talk about loving our enemies. How many of you have an enemy? And everybody raised their hand, except the one woman in the back. About a 98 year old woman and he said oh Miss Smith well stand up and tell us how, how in the world did you make it through life with no enemies and she said I outlived them all yeah <laughs> and maybe you're that but I want you to think for a moment about the person who triggers you who triggers you for a moment because it might be That their presence in your life, their presence at your table that God set before you is to serve as a mirror so that you see something in you that you are not prone to look at that often. In fact, can I get you to do an experiment with me? I want you to imagine a table hmm, set for 10 right up here. And let's say at the end of the table, occupying the number 10 spot, is the enemy. And it just so happens that at this dinner party, he's everybody's enemy. Like he makes all of the other nine around the table upset about something. But it's interesting because his presence at the table may set off the person sitting in seat one for one reason, but maybe setting the person in seat two off for a different reason. For example, maybe the person in seat number one in the presence of that enemy is so angry why is he even here he didn't even RSVP <laughs> what but maybe the mirror for the person sitting in chair one is why am I so angry and why about this and not the other and why about them and not these others maybe a mirror the person sitting in seat number two may not be bothered with anger the person in seat number two may be ticked off because why do I always feel like I have to defend my position in the world With this person here, why am I always somehow trying to prove something and gain some favor in this person's eyes? And maybe the person sitting in number two needs to recognize that the mirror being held up is so that they can look at their own pride and ego. Why is it that I am so defensive around this person? Or maybe the person sitting in seat number three doesn't have either of those problems at all. Maybe the person sitting in seat number three is so upset with the enemy because the enemy somehow tells a kind of truth about them? And you know there's a little nugget of truth in everything that ticks us off, right? And maybe the person sitting in seat number three has worked their whole life in order to deceive themselves from believing this thing is true. And their presence at the table makes them reckon with something they need to reckon with. And maybe... The person sitting in seat number four is not dealing with any of that, but the mirror at the end of the table for them is why is their marriage so much better than mine? Why do their kids their kids talk to them and speak spend time their kids call from home? They And maybe the person in seat number four is dealing with a sense of envy over something they perceive they are missing and this person's presence actually evokes an awareness of that fear that I may be missing this thing and maybe it's not the person at all. Maybe it's something in here. Or maybe the person sitting in seat number five. They don't know why they're upset with this, this enemy at the end of the table. All they know is that person exhausts me. And they talk all the time, they won't stop talking, and they want to talk to me, and they want my answers about things. And I only have so much energy to give, and so all I know is I'm, I'm, when I leave this place, I just want to take a nap. Because they wear me out. And it may be that the mirror of this enemy at the end of the table, for the person in the sixth seat, doesn't doesn't bother them any of this other stuff but maybe the person in the sixth seat is troubled because this person represents something they just can't trust i don't trust him i don't trust the way he look what he does with his face when he says that thing i don't trust him and if i can't trust him well maybe i can't trust who came with him and if i can't trust them maybe i can't maybe i can't trust you and maybe this whole world like i've been saying forever is not trustworthy and his presence at my table reminds me that i'm nervous that this whole world is not trustworthy Or maybe the person in seat number 7 has to deal with any of that at all. But maybe the person in seat number seven, see if this person is at your Thanksgiving dinner. When the enemy shows up, there's something about this enemy that holds up a mirror and forces the person in seat number seven to address his or her own pain or suffering. And they don't want to do that because they've worked so hard their whole life at ignoring it and moving on past it. And maybe the person in seat number eight is mad, not about all those things, but about the reality that when that person enters the room, my enemy, they suck all the air out of the room and they make all the energy of the room focus on them. And I don't know how to be in a room that I'm not in control of. And maybe lastly, and maybe my favorite is the person sitting in seat number nine. Because they don't have a problem with the guy at the top of the table. They don't have a problem with the enemy. They really don't have any issues with him. It's just, I know that he has an issue with her. And every time they're in the room, the anxiety, like a, like a, like a temperature, just rises in the room. And it's so uncomfortable. I just want to run and hide. Do you see, we call people enemies that actually may not really be our enemy. But rather, the mirror that shows a problem in a me. Sometimes the enemy in a V reveals the enemy in a me. And maybe that's why God sets a table before me in the presence of mine enemies, not to punish me, but to provoke me. To provoke me to what? Being angry, frustrated, upset? No to provoke me, to look at them long enough to see something beyond the thing that offends me because when I can see that, then I might see me. Yeah, to look long enough, to see in them the thing that is stirred and needs some work in me. See, God doesn't set a table before you in the presence of your enemies to torment you but to transform you, to transform you. Maybe that's why we hear all this talk about the oil that anoints my head. You know, in ancient times, oil was used for medicinal reasons. It was healing, it healed that which was sick, but it was also used as a symbol of affirmation and endorsement and blessing. Remember, God had David anointed with oil to prepare him for his life as a king. Jesus was anointed by the woman on his head and, and feet with oil as a way to prepare him for his crucifixion and burial. Aaron, in the book of Leviticus, when he became the priest, the high priest was anointed with head from head to foot and the oil ran down, as the text says, in such a way that it ran down Aaron's beard and the sight of it was lovely to the Lord. I think... What some of us need, if for thanksgiving, if for no other reason, is to somehow learn to let God's healing oil run down. Yeah. Because, you know, when we take an image of Aaron and the oil running down, I think to myself, before we go into a table where the enemies will be all around, maybe my prayer is... Lord, let the oil of your love so pour over my head that my mind is changed about them. Lord, let the oil of your love change my mind about my relationship with them and what I can actually learn from the one I wish would just go away. And let the oil run into my eyes, Lord, that I might be able to see more clearly who they are and look beyond the thing that offends me. Let the oil run into my ears, Lord, that I may listen not just to how they say what they say, but to what they say. Let the oil run down, O Lord, your healing oil of love onto my mouth, that I may speak only words of life and healing and reconciliation, and let your oil run down over my heart that I may feel and not be led by my feelings, and let that oil run into my hands so that I may actually do something that would please you. See, the healing oil of our Lord is the love of God which covers us head to foot. Can I tell you what that looks like a little bit? So we have a JCBC member, um, Wayne Boutwell. He is in the room here today. And Wayne has given me permission to share a powerful moment in his life recently that I think is just the whole point. He had always had a very close relationship with his brother. Got along fine, close relationships, friendships throughout many years, friendships. Until in recent years, you and I know that our country, which is always one side or the other, binary, you know, you're either Republican or Democrat, you're either conservative or liberal, you know, you're either in or out, our country has become even more divided and it's been felt among all of our families. Wayne said in recent years, it got so intense between he and his brother Wayne represents more of a conservative approach to many things, and his brother more of a liberal approach to many things. And they would argue How can you see things this way? What is is wrong with you? How can anybody see the world the way you're seeing the world? And it got to the point where it became so painful, they stopped talking. I can tell you one thing that is more tragic than a disagreement is for one or both. To decide to walk away from the table it got to where in times they would only speak on occasions and there was an estrangement between them and it was painful for a long time and then not long ago he had a conversation with his brother he said i'm just going to address the elephant in the room we're going to talk about this for just a moment he said to his brother look i don't get you i don't get it i don't get how you can come in life with this kind of approach what is your point? What What do you hope to get out of this? What is your goal here? And his brother began to talk about what his hope was, what his goal was, you know, for the world, for America, for neighborliness, for a family. He began to share what his aim was, and Wayne said, "Well, well, that's my goal. They have the same goal." And he came to this moment of discovery that they had the very same hope in mind, but different ideas about how you get to the same destination. And once he realized that, once the healing oil of God's love came over his eyes, his ears, his mouth, his mind, his heart, he was able to then say, well, okay, and now they talk, they talk about the very things that at one time divided them and there was a reunion in them, there was a reconciliation in them, and that, my friends, is the kingdom of God. That there is exactly the kingdom of God. It doesn't mean either one have to give up their, their firmly held beliefs about a thing, but it means if you can recognize we're all going to the same table. And how we get to the table that we want to get to may have a circuitous route for you and for me, but if we can learn to see each other through the eyes of Christ, we realize everybody belongs at the table, even my enemies. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said it best. He said it this way, love is the only force capable of turning an enemy into a friend. I don't know how you're hearing all that after seven weeks of talking about table manners and how we abide in the same table with one another, but I can tell you this, I I promise somebody may be here today, and you're at the place where you want healing in your relationships. You do. And so far, it's not happened. And you want to be able to share a meal, even if you don't talk about what's on the news, even if you keep the news off the TV, because who can choose which channel we're going to listen to, right? You want that sense of reunion that you know is coming at the end of the age. Maybe your prayer today is to allow the healing oil of God's love to come over your mind, your eyes, your ears, your mouth, your heart, your hands. But maybe you've never been in a moment of prayer where you have given your life to Christ, to ask that Christ would redeem and transform you so that you can be Best version of yourself at the table, then maybe you, you simply pray these words today, right where you are. God, I am tired. I am tired of attempting to do life and to share life with people I love, and yet there's always this impasse. There's always this thing, God. And I realize no matter how hard I try, they try even harder, and the divide just keeps growing, and I realize. You are the only bridge between us. And maybe I have not yielded myself to you enough to be fully present in that moment with the enemy in the room. So in this moment, I ask that you would transform me from the inside out. I pray that you would forgive me for all of those ways that I allowed my ego to take control rather than you. Forgive me of all of my sins. And give me a new heart that I might be able to see everyone who is around me as a child who you love and who you bled and died for. Transform me now. I am yours. In Christ's name. Amen.